This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. You'll need to plan and prepare. And in some cases, you may be forced to rip and replace your EHR. Hello, I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the executive session monthly discussion with a healthcare leader on a critical issue of interest medical practice executives. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rob Tennant, MGMA Government Affairs Director of Health Information Technology Policy. Rob, uh, please introduce yourself and describe your role in the MGMA Government Affairs Office. Thanks, Dave. I've been uh, with MGMA uh, since 1997, a long time, and I've been focused on health information technology issues And the good news is there's always something changing in the field, so it's kept me busy over the years. But I've had the great opportunity to go out and speak with literally thousands of MGMA members about these issues and and also to uh, work on behalf of uh, group practice leaders. I also know your responsibilities include monitoring how CMS and other federal entities regulate information technology, and also you're a member of a number of federal and industry work groups. Can you give me some more insights into this background? To keep up with uh, health information technology issues, of course, uh, it's not limited just to Congress, uh, but most of the action happens at the agency level. So the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the Office of National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, or ONC, and also OCR, the Office for Civil Rights, which oversees HIPAA privacy and security. So I've been uh, absolutely uh, engaged with that. And as well, um, I'm involved in a number of industry activities, most prominently uh, uh, the Work Group for Electronic Data Interchange, uh, better known as WEDI. That's been around um, since the 1990s and really was um, instrumental in getting HIPAA passed in order to try to move away from manual processes like submitting uh, claims on paper and moving things to electronic, which helps groups uh, decrease their costs and improve their efficiency. I also work on some of the accreditation groups, uh, ENAC, the the Electronic uh, Healthcare Network Accreditation uh, Commission, the National Uniform Claim Committee, uh, CAQH Core, which is the entity that develops operating rules in support of the electronic transactions, and many others. So they certainly keep me busy, that's for mm-hmm. sure. Well, also, uh, for our listeners, if they have issues regarding any of these topics, uh, I'm going to say, as an MGMA member, they know your phone number, and uh, they can actually have the opportunity to provide direct input at the working group level if they have specific concerns or issues or any aspect of ranging from, as you said, security to the transfer of information, just are to some of the basic standards that how health IT functions. It helps to have, as we say, a friend in high places there on the working groups putting stuff together. 
Oh, there's no question. And, and Dave, I can assure you that uh, we've got a wonderful feedback loop here at MGMA. Uh, I learn uh, so much from the members, whether I go out and speak at state meetings or engage them via email or phone calls. It's an enormous um, challenge for our groups to uh, to get ready and, and implement any changes, but uh, I can certainly learn from their experience and pass that on to policymakers. And also, uh, we leverage other coalitions, provider coalitions, groups that include health plans, so I can you know, suggest and cajole as much as I can there. But also, uh, we work with the press. So the more I learn about how these regulations um, are impacting the grassroots uh, world of medical groups, the more I, I can convey to policymakers and the press. Oh, well, let's talk about federal law and regulation <laughs> and, how they, and what is happening in the whole health tea arena. I think our listeners will recollect 10 years ago, President Barack Obama signed into law, is, was officially called the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act, which abbreviated as HITECH, which regulated how electronic health record systems, they store and communicate health information. And I think where most people remember HITECH is that it also authorized a financial incentive for physicians, hospitals, and other healthcare providers to adopt a certified electronic health record system. And I think we also can recognize that the HITECH Act had a number of goals. One of the goals was adoption of electronic health records. And this was, I think, well received and because possibly because of the financial incentive. But we also know now that some 95% of hospitals and well over 80% of physicians have adopted a certified electronic health record. However, <laughs> as we all know, a lot of the other aspects of high tech were much less successful. Can you give us some insight into some of the issues where high tech either didn't address a topic at all or where the implementing regulations failed to bring the desired change? Yeah, you know, um, the public policy around electronic health records really goes back uh, to 2004 and the State of the Union address by then President uh, George Bush. He uh, called on the government and the health industry to transition to computerized records within 10 years. So it was a little bit like the moonshot that uh, John Kennedy called for. And that really sparked uh, great interest by policymakers in this area. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we saw high tech include uh, the EHR provisions that it did. And the good news was for the first time, Congress attached some real dollars to this policy. Because we always used to, to think, wow, what could this industry do with a billion dollars? Well, they earmarked 25 or more billion dollars for this program. So that, that was the great news. The law also stipulated, because there was a little bit of concern, as you can imagine, that if they just said, oh, go ahead and buy any EHR and we'll pay you for it, that we wouldn't achieve the overall goals of the legislation. So HITECH set forth four requirements for a physician to get access to those incentive dollars. The first, as you alluded to, Dave, was the system had to be certified. And that led to an entirely new sort of creation of a certification entity, and we can talk about that later. But the system had to be certified. The second 
uh, piece was it had to be able to electronically prescribe medication, e-prescribing. The third was it had to be able to report quality measures to the government. And the final uh, piece was it had to exchange health information electronically. And that was it. That was the extent of high-tech's uh, direction. And the secretary then took those four things and created an entire program, which is affectionately known in the industry as the Meaningful Use Program, because that term came from high-tech, which said the clinician had to use the EHR in a meaningful way. The problem with high-tech is that the certification was tied directly to the Meaningful Use Program so that the EHR vendors created their software to meet the requirements of the program. And I can assure you from the many comment letters that MGMA submitted on the program, they missed the mark on many occasions. So the program was flawed. The program focused far too much on reporting quality measures, and not at all on things like end user usability. And so I think what happens is that the the real world of, of practices saw EHRs that were cumbersome and didn't do what they uh, were purported to do, which was to make life easier for physicians. So the intent of the law, uh, at least in, in part, was adhered to. We got huge increases in the number of practices and hospitals adopting the technology. But the technology really didn't do what it was intended to do, which was really to be able to share patient data easily and effectively. In fact, if you talk to physicians, among their major complaints is the amount of time that they spend with their focus on their health record and not on their patient when they have a patient visit and also the uh, inability to easily transfer information from one health record to, an, to a health record in another system. So as patients move through the healthcare uh, system themselves, their medical records sometimes only go in a fragmented way, and we lose that interoperability that can actually affect and benefit the patient care. We know that Congress tried to, to really address some of the the deficits of high tech that they create, they passed a law in December, 2016, which was the 21st century cures act. And can you basically summarize what this law covers? Because it's the attempt to try to fix those, those missing elements of high tech. Yeah, no, Dave, you're absolutely right. And I will say the, the 21st century cures act was, Uh, widely bipartisan, which is an important component because we've seen a very fractured Congress over the last 15 years or so. But Cures was passed overwhelmingly in both the House and the Senate. Um, It did a lot of things. Uh, We won't talk about the the impact on medications and the the creation of of new drugs. We'll focus on Title IV, which is improving the delivery of healthcare. And it did a lot of things. It really focused in on EHRs. They wanted uh, more transparency in terms of usability, security, and functionality. It called for a new ratings program. It called on a program to uh, identify interoperability fees, 
which then would be made public. It talked a lot about interoperability and something called the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, known as TEFCA, which is sort of an overall game plan on how we're going to be able to move records seamlessly from place to place and even state to state. So the idea is we need uh, sort of an, uh, for want of a, a better term, a superhighway to allow data to flow where it needs to go and to whom it needs to go. They talk about something called information blocking. It's one of those situations where they're basically saying to uh, providers, uh, hospitals, clinics, that you are not permitted to stop the flow of information. And so once we get into the proposed rule, we'll see that they dealt with some exceptions. But the idea was that you should not stop the flow of information simply for business reasons. And so, again, that goes to not just providers, but also uh, software vendors, that they're not permitted to build into their software barriers for the movement of data. They also talked about empowering patients, improving patient access to their electronic health information. And in particular, the bill talks about a new standard, uh, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, or FIRE. And the idea is, can we leverage the technology that we use every day in our smartphones when we use Expedia or Travelocity to book our flights? Can we use that same app technology known as API, Application Programming Interface Standards, to allow information to flow from the provider's EHR to the patient's smartphone? And the caveat that the law sets forth is that that has to be enabled without special effort. And that without special effort is an important term that ONC, the National Coordinator's Office, has taken to heart in trying to develop a proposed rule that will allow the patient to gain access to their health information directly um, from the provider's EHR. So that's a huge change uh, in the industry. There's also uh, a call on the the uh, Government Accountability Office to do a study on patient matching and why that is important. Ever since uh, the Clinton administration, there has been a prohibition on the government, the administration working on the issue of a national patient identifier. And the challenge with interoperability is if you're getting sent a record for Robert Tennant, is that the same as the record that is sent uh, in, with the name of Rob Tennant or Robert M. Tennant. And so to be able to accurately match records is critical because as you, you can imagine, if a patient presents and then the physician receives a, a record, if it's not matched accurately, they could take clinical action based on inaccurate data. So uh, the industry has struggled with trying to find ways to accurately match records without using this national patient identifier. The hope is that at some point we'll lift the prohibition and move forward because we don't think as an association that we can really rely on the data unless we're guaranteed they're being matched accurately to the patient. 
And then there's a few other things. There's um, a requirement for a pediatric EHR certification program, uh, mainly because uh, pediatric uh, practices, for the most part, do not participate in what used to be known as the Meaningful Use EHR Incentive Program, now known as the Quality Payment Program, because, frankly, they don't see Medicare patients. So they didn't have a need for a certification, or at least there was limited value. So, and it has a lot of sort of generic sections about, again, about usability and reportability. And again, as as you alluded to, Dave, earlier, um, it is left up to HHS to flesh out the details, which is often the case. In fact, well, you, you you mentioned a couple of key things. The 21st Century Cures Act was signed into law by President Obama in December 2016. Okay, three years later, the law is not still not promulgated as full regulation, but we have seen the preliminary rule uh, that challenges CMS and the Office of National Quarter for Health IT to have certain responsibilities, and you address some of them. Uh, anything else you want to point out? When this rule came out, and it was literally hundreds and hundreds of pages, there are some very important components which we strongly support. And there's no question that we believe, uh, and we've heard it from our members, that patients having better access to their own health data will only improve the healthcare system. So that transparency is important. However, there has to be a balance between the patient getting access uh, to their health information and maintaining the privacy and security of that information. I'll pick at one aspect of the ONC proposed rule, which has garnered perhaps the most attention over the last uh, few weeks and months, and that is this provision that requires the practice to release the entire medical record to a patient's app at their request. And that's great. I mean, we all want the patient to have access to the data. Where we have concerns is, uh, and you know, I'll ask the, the listeners to say, how many times when you've downloaded an app to your own phone, have you actually read the terms and conditions before you hit I accept? And the answer is probably never. And so we're concerned that these third-party apps, which are not covered by HIPAA, will take that data that they uh, receive from the patient and either de-identify it and sell it or not de-identify it and sell it or curate it and push it out to people that perhaps shouldn't be looking at the data. So we're not opposed at all to patients having access to the data. What MGMA is called on is for a little more oversight of these third-party applications. So, for example, one opportunity would be to certify them, to make sure they meet a certain level of privacy and security. Another option is to ensure that they're more transparent to the patient regarding what they will do with the data. So it's, it's made a little more clear to the patient that that app could take that data and send it somewhere where the patient uh, didn't want it sent to. There's also the idea about having a new level of EHR certification, and this could be problematic. Part of the regulation calls on the software developers to add a lot more functionality 
to the EHR, including this third-party app functionality. The challenge there is, of course, they pass all of their costs on to their clients who happen to be MGMA members. And we're concerned that the lever for incentives is drying up considerably. So, for example, there was $40,000, $50,000 available to a practice to I implement EHRs back under meaningful use. But that money now under the quality payment program runs about a percent and a half of your Medicare dollars. So that could be $1,000 or $2,000. That's not going to cover the expected cost of these upgrades. So we want to make sure that there's a little more flexibility that will allow a practice to um, either decide to upgrade their technology or not, depending on their financial situation. The other issue is back to this information blocking. Again, you know, the Cures Act went out of its way to really prevent or try to prevent the blocking of, of information from place to place. But the way that the proposed rule laid it out is a little bit similar to the Stark uh, law that many of our uh, practices are familiar with, and that is they set out seven exceptions. So all information blocking is prohibited. However, there are these exceptions, and the challenge there is they're very complicated exceptions, and it takes a lot of administrative activity to prove that the reason why you weren't able to share the data fell within one of the exceptions. And so we're calling on the government to streamline that, make it a little bit easier for the practice to deal with an exception and not adding more administrative burden to practices. The other main concern we have is a very simple one, and that is the definition of electronic health information. So when they talk about information blocking, what, what do they mean by information? They define that as EHI, electronic health information, and that is basically everything that is in the record. And the proposed rule actually states that EHI would include past, present, and future payment. So again, you can imagine the logistics. If a patient comes in and says, I'd like all of my EHI, potentially the practice would have to go back 10, 20 years of every single claim they submitted for payment. Many of that information might be housed outside the practice, perhaps even by companies that are no longer operational. And if you missed you know, one single claim from 15 years ago, potentially you could be fined for being an information blocker. So We've called on the government to streamline that, to make it a lot more narrow in terms of what would be considered EHI. And one of the things that the government has set forth is a standardized set of health data elements known as the USCDI. And we've called on the government to use that baseline as the floor for information blocking. Then it's clearly understood it captures the most important data that the patient would need, you know, the problem list, allergies, medications, things that are really actionable on the part of clinicians. So one of the things uh, as well that we've been watching carefully, 
the government says that the vendors uh, can only charge reasonable fees for all of these activities. And that's wonderful. We're certainly appreciative of the government taking that initial step. However, we are concerned uh, about the implications of the word reasonable. What's reasonable to, to a practice may be different than what is reasonable to a vendor. And the other thing is we're concerned that they may roll some of the functionality into new versions of the software. So they may say, oh, no, the interoperability is free, but in order to get it, you'll need to buy version 4.5, and that'll be $50,000. So we're going to watch very closely for that in the rule, but also how it plays out. And if we're hearing about uh, unfair business practices and price gouging, we're certainly going to bring it to the attention of OMC. So those are just a few of the highlights. There's certainly a lot of provisions in the rule that will impact practices, but that might be subject for another podcast. Well, I think once the final rule comes out, I know that you have a webinar scheduled next month. We'll talk about that in a little bit, which hopefully the final rule will be out by then and you'll be able to get into much more depth. As we talked about the elements of 21st Century Cures Act and how they're going to affect medical groups, you mentioned a little bit about the concept of a national patient identifier and its benefits. Uh, Do you want to expound a little bit more on this and why is the identifier important to medical groups? It's interesting. When the um, topic of the national uh, provider identifier came up, it it was in in, um, context of the HIPAA law. The interesting thing about it is HIPAA outlined that there had to be identifiers. So there had to be a national provider identifier, the the, the NPI, a national payer identifier, a national employer identifier, and a national patient identifier. The idea was that if we could standardize the identifiers, it would make information flow so much easier. And there's No question that the NPI, the National Provider Identifier, has made life much easier for practices. And the idea was, why couldn't we do that on the patient side? And, of course, folks looked at other countries around the world and, you know, our friendly neighbor to the north, Canada, they have implemented a a unique patient identifier that is used only in the healthcare system. And the idea was that could we emulate Canada and other countries in creating this number. Unfortunately, some elements within Congress believed that the government was planning a huge national patient database that would be based on this unique patient identifier and that the government would be able to track all of your health data. So very quickly, there were bills introduced in Congress. This is going back around uh, around 2000. They were calling for repeal of HIPAA. They were calling for repeal of this provision in HIPAA. And ultimately, none of those bills were passed, but there was a a piece uh, called a rider added to an appropriations bill that basically prohibited the government from working on this unique patient identifier. And ever since then, now it's been uh, close to 20 years, there's been a provision added Um, that prohibits work on this. This last appropriations round, finally, uh, after, uh, you know, lobbying efforts from from MGMA and others, we were able to get on the House side 
lifting of the prohibition, which was great news. On the Senate side, we weren't able to get that uh, language inserted. So the bottom line is we've got a little more wiggle room. Again, it allows the government to at least explore some of these issues, but it still prohibits the, the administration from issuing a unique patient identifier. And as I alluded to earlier, um, in order to accurately match records that are flying across the country because of this interoperability, because of health information exchange entities that are located in states and regions, um, you know, uh, it's incredible how similar many names are. And of course, you know, there could be situations where somebody listed their work address at one place and their home address at another, so you can't match up the zip codes. Birth date seems like a reasonable data point, but some people put day first and other people put month first, so that could be a problem. Some people put an inaccurate birth date down. And there's an extreme example um, that a lot of people use. In one Texas county, there are 264 women by the name of Maria Garcias with the same birth date. And so you can imagine the challenges uh, with trying to match these patient records. And I'll relate one anecdote um, that I heard from uh, Representative uh, Bill Foster from Illinois. He was one of the um, co-sponsors of the House Amendment that would lift the prohibition on HHS working on the unique patient identifier. He related a story where um, an individual came into the ER and they were searching for additional records through the local health information exchange and apparently got one that said, do not resuscitate. And it was for the wrong patient. And of course it was a terrible outcome. So it just reminds us of how important it is to accurately uh, match patient records. Well, you know, we've talked about the, the law itself. We've talked about some of the preliminary rule as it's being implemented. Uh, let's think about what's going to happen once they are finalized. What will this mean for medical groups? It could be uh, fairly minor depending on what's in the rule, or it could literally transform how they do business. So let's, let's talk about a few of the potentials here. The one obvious one is that their EHR technology is going to be upgraded. And again, that, that could uh, result in, in some significant costs, certainly potential retraining of staff, but also this idea about sharing data with the patient through an app. And again, what's interesting is OCR, again, the Office for Civil Rights has issued guidance to practices, essentially telling them that they will be held harmless if there is a problem after they move the data to the patient's app. So if the patient gets that information and then later that app sells it and there, there's a problem, the, the practice would not be held liable for that. And that's great, but still there is a relationship that the practice has with their patients. And they want uh, the best for their patient, not only for their health, but also they don't want that health information to go to the wrong individual. So we hope that we see some significant changes in the final rule when that comes out. But there's also the idea about uh, one thing we didn't 
mention that there's actually uh, another set of regulations that came out on the same day as the ONC ones put out by CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And one of the most important things there is a requirement on hospitals to make available to a primary care physician or a physician designated by the patient the admit, discharge, or transfer information. And the idea there is that a practice, I'll, I'll take an example as a, a, of, a, of a primary care practice, perhaps in an ACO or in a risk arrangement, where they absolutely want to know that their patient went into the ER on the weekend. That would allow them to then contact the, the patient, follow up, and perhaps make sure they don't end up back in the ER. So that information flow will be uh, very, very effective. Now, they have um, attached some very powerful uh, potential penalties on hospitals that are not able to, uh, to move the ADT information. So we're going to watch for the final rule uh, to see how they deal with that. The other important piece to the um, CMS rule is that they are requiring um, health plans to make available through what's known as uh, blue button technology um, claims data to the patient. So the hope is that the patient will be able to use their own third-party app to curate that data and present it to the patient in a way that makes sense. Because as we all know, if you get uh, a bunch of claims data thrown at you, that will not mean much as a patient. There's a lot of medical uh, jargon and term terminology, billing codes that are really meaningless but the idea is the more information that is made available, that these third-party apps can curate it and offer it to the patient in a way that makes the most sense. So there's a lot of logistical issues with these uh, regulations. We're going to watch to see about information blocking. We're going to watch to see how they define health information because that will potentially require a practice to hire an information blocking specialist, if you can imagine that, that would be responsible for making sure that either information was not blocked or if it was blocked, that there was a case-by-case -case explanation for why the, the information couldn't be shared and presented to the government in case of an audit. So uh, there's a lot that a practice can do. Perhaps the most important thing, though, Dave, is for them to keep in touch with MGMA. So any major changes, anything required, we will, of course, push that out to the members via the Washington Connection uh, e-newsletter, uh, through articles in uh, the Connection magazine. We'll have online resources and toolkits, and uh, we'll have a webinar, which is scheduled for late March, and so we'll continually uh, communicate not only what's included in the rule, but what they need to do in their own organizations to implement the provisions of the rule. We uh, have a wonderful member community. There's communities by specialty, by topic, and it allows you to ask questions. And s some of the communities are expertly moderated, so you'll get an answer from an MGMA uh, staff. Uh, but also it allows you to hear from your peers. Uh, how are they dealing with some of these issues? Um, I think that that's a, a great way. 
Um, and the other thing to do is to have a conversation with your EHR vendor. So once these rules come out, there's of course an implementation period. Usually in these types of situations, it's usually at least a year, but I suspect there may be 24 months for some. So talk to your vendor about what their plans are, what the expected costs are. You'll need to plan and prepare. And in some cases, you may be forced to rip and replace your EHR, depending on what the practice needs are and what the software vendor is able to offer. But talking with your vendors, talking with your peers, talking with MGMA experts, hopefully will prepare you for these changes. You know, Rob, there's so much we could, more we could discuss. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, you know, the, what, what's so interesting is just this past Friday, February 21st, the government issued a new report, which is entitled Strategy on Reducing Regulatory and Administrative Burden Relating to the Use of Health IT and EHRs. So at the same time as they're putting out regulations, um, making things more complex and more ch challenging, they're also putting out an 80-page report talking about the many burdens associated with health <laughs> IT. So. Our, our role at MGMA, of course, is to give them a, as, as much in information as we can related to the real world of medical practice and how health IT can both help and hinder the care delivery system. Well, Rob, thank you so much for your time and especially your insights into the 21st Century Cures Act and the changes that it's going to bring to uh, how medical practices function. I mean, it's because uh, it's going to touch almost every element of our of our practice. Thank you so much for your time. I know our listeners are going to find her discussion most interesting. Well, thank you very much, Dave. popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com analytics today.